If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 21. As we go through our progression of the first book of the Psalter that Carlton started uh, way back when, we, uh, we come to Psalm 21. And just a little background on this psalm, like Carlton kind of alluded to last week, Psalm 21 is a companion to Psalm 20, where Psalm 20 is mostly um, the ceremony before a battle. Psalm 21 is mostly a celebration after the battle. So they, these are dealing with warfare events in its historical context. So, and, um, uh, and this psalm, once again, in, in relation to its historical context, is dealing with the theocracy of Israel where you have the Lord Yahweh mediates through his king, in, in, in this sense David, or king slash general, to his people who would be the soldiers. So, um, uh, so the battles uh, that were fought by Israel were truly holy wars where the success of the army of Israel was solely dependent on the Lord. One example of this is, goes all the way back to the Exodus when God with a mighty hand brought Israel out of bondage in, in, bondage in Egypt, led them out. Uh, the pursuit of Pharaoh's army carried them to the brink of the Red Sea where God, through Moses, miraculously parted the sea. The children of Israel were allowed to pass on dry land and he drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And, and so since the time of the Exodus, God has gone before Israel to, uh, to protect them and fight for them. This is clear in Deuteronomy 31.3 where they are on the brink of entering into the promised land. It says, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. This is Moses speaking. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. But Psalm 21 points beyond Israel, beyond David, and beyond the historical elements of this psalm to the blessings of the eternal king and the destruction of all the enemies of God. So let's read Psalm 21, and then we're going to go through it um, uh, verse by verse. It says, O oh Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You have set, you set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the gladness in your presence. For the king trusts the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstring at their faces. 
Be exalted, O Lord, in your power. We will sing and praise your power. So you can really divide this psalm into two parts. And the first part is verses 1 through 7 where we see God's victory through his king. Verse 1 where it says, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. The strength of the Lord is the source of all blessings that are bestowed throughout this psalm and for David. Uh, This dependence on God, God's might was the source of his joy. Now, joy is different from happiness. Uh, We're going through the book of Philippians in our Friday morning Bible study where joy is a central theme in Paul's epistle. And the difference is between happiness and joy is happiness is an emotional response to an event or circumstance. But joy is a deep-rooted satisfaction in a relationship that remains in spite of our circumstances. In other words, happiness comes and goes. But joy remains no matter what happens around us. And we have already seen in our study of the Psalms where David has expressed that that true joy comes from the Lord. In Psalms 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, You have put gladness, which same word translated joy, in my heart, more than their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And in Psalm 16, 11, as Dave preached just a few weeks ago, says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. When he says you will make known to me the path of life, what is that? That's salvation. So true joy only comes by those who experience salvation in the Lord. That's the only place we can enjoy true joy. And in verses 2 and 3, it says, You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things, and you set a crown of fine gold on his head. Now, because of God's strength, the victory and the joy that he gives also brings what comes with it great blessing. Verses 2 and 3 are the, basically the fulfillment of the, uh, of the petition. If you flip over... To Psalm 20, verses 44 and 5, he says, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. And we will sing for your joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 21 are the fulfillment of that. Remember, these are uh, 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 twin psalms you know, on each side of the battle, as, as I mentioned earlier. Now, the desires and the requests that are granted in verse 2 are not selfish desires or foolish requests. That is, they are not generated out of a carnal mind but are rooted in the love for God. Psalm 37 verses 3 through 5 gives great clarity about what it is to have godly desires. Listen as the psalmist speaks. says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So we see that the desires of our heart must be generated out of a trust, obedience, faithfulness, delighting, and commitment to the Lord. 
And the blessings of God are always good and always abundant. We don't have to search for the blessing of God. He brings them to us. Like Dave says earlier, we don't have to pray for God to come to us. He's here. The same way with his blessing. He bestows it on us freely to those whom he loves. And in, this, in verse 3, we see that the king is crowned with a crown of fine gold. This signifies acceptance and the delegating of authority. This is not man's king. This is God's king. Remember, in the theology of Israel, the chain of command was God, commander-in-chief, the king, and then the people. And the historical context of the psalm is praise to God for physical deliverance through the king, in this sense, David, who was the first true king of Israel and the fact that he was God's anointed king. Yes, I know Saul was the first king, but he was the people's choice. He was the one that was tall and good-looking and, and looked like a king. Even when Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he sees the seven other sons of Jesse pass before him, they all had, from an outward appearance, the, uh, the makings of a king. But he wasn't, it wasn't God's choice. And in 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 through 13, Samuel would ask Jesse, is there another son? He says, yes, the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. He was the least significant of all. You know, the, the youngest it may indicate Jesse was not very rich because he didn't have a slave to tend the sheep. So he sent his youngest son. So they sent for him, and he said he sent and brought him in, speaking of David. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And, in the spirit, and then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And it was with David that God made a covenant promising that his descendant would be raised up and the throne of his kingdom would be established forever. And you can read the fullness of God's promises in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through uh, uh, 17. Let me just read that for you because we don't spend enough time talking about uh, the particulars of a lot of, of God's covenants. But listen to the promise that God gives Davis in, in, this, in this covenant. He says, Now therefore thus, now thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I, will, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares you, to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I shall establish, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, the covenant David speaks like I said, in the immediate context, it speaks of Solomon. Solomon built the temple. David didn't. Um, uh, like Arthur mentioned last week, David was a, a man of war, a man of blood. And, and Solomon sinned, and, and God divided the kingdom after, after him. But he's speaking beyond Solomon. He's speaking to uh, David's greater son, the one who would be the the descendant singular uh, with whom uh, God would establish his throne forever. So like I said, in, in verse 4, we see he asked life of you and you gave it to him and length of days forever. And in the first part of that verse, it it's most likely pertains to the preservation of life in the battle. But the latter part of the verse where the Lord gives to the king length of days forever, this is pointing beyond David to the eternal king. The psalmist is expressing great surety in the preservation of the promise to David. The surety of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is beautifully expressed in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. It says, I have made a covenant... With my chosen, and I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And if you go over, and we won't read it, but just read down from starting verse 27 all the way through 37, and, and well, 36 and 37, God says, His descendants shall endure forever. And his throne as the moon before me, and it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. What God is saying there is if the sun keeps shining, and the moon keeps shining, and the natural order is going on as it is, that is the surety that I will keep my covenant with David. So, when in, in the psalm where it says that the king is given length of days forever, ever, that's pointing by beyond David as um, it says in the book of Acts Peter says that you know our, sir, our king David his, you know, he's dead buried his bones are here with us so this is pointing beyond David now the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal one and fulfills the Davidic covenant is evident as we come to the New Testament in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ he is called the son of David the angel Gabriel announcing his birth in Luke 1, 31 through 33 says, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So the term Son of David, that's a messianic term, and it's very Interesting in the scripture, you see who God reveals Christ as the son of David to. He is recognized as the son of David by a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 22. 
He's recognized by the by two blind, as son of David by two blind men on the road to Jericho and Jerusalem in Matthew 20, 31. And in Matthew 21, 9, as he enters Jerusalem, he enters to the, triumph, to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. And this crowd only a few days later would turn against him and be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And as we go down to verse 5, it says, His glory is great through your salvation and splendor and majesty you place upon him. God grants glory and majesty to his king. The Lord bestows eternal blessing and joy to his king. But none of these gifts come outside the presence of God. Because the Lord had extended loving kindness to the king and has been faithful in all his promises, the king trusts the Lord completely so that he is not shaken by fear and doubt. So how does this apply to us? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal king whom God glorified, and we have been baptized into his body through the Spirit. And as Romans 8, 8 tells us, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And so in Christ, we experience the blessings and joy from the Lord. We are recipients of his grace, and the grace of God is the foundation of our love for God. And that is manifest in our love for one another. 1 John 4, 19 through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And how does God demonstrate his love for us? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we've seen in the first seven verses how God interacts with his own. The psalmist uses languages that reflect gladness, joy, blessing, comfort, trust, steadfastness, and loving kindness, all bestowed by the Lord to his king and how as children of the king... Jesus Christ, by grace through faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we inherit and partake of all these good things. And we rejoice that we're being transformed into the image of Christ and live in the confidence of the Apostle Paul, as he states in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work on us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're not what we're supposed to be yet. But we will be before he's through with us. So these first seven verses talks about God's blessing, how he gives victory to his people. But I want you to notice as we briefly go through verses 8 through 12 how the language is starkly contrast. What about the enemies of God? We know, we know the blessings that the children of God receive. What about the enemies of God? How will God deal with them? And like I said, notice the language of how God deals with those who hate him. In these verses right here, as one commentator said in verses 8 through 12, without denying the mediatory role of the king general, the delineation of these passages obviously put the spotlight on the commander of chief. God says, vengeance is mine. 
he will deal retribution to, to those who hate him. So in verse 8 and 9, in these two verses, we see that the Lord will deal out retribution to his enemies as completely and abundantly as he blesses those he calls his own. Verse 8 says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Do you see the difference? Do you see any blessing in that compared to what we read in the first seven verses? Verse 8 says, all of God's enemies will be found. And verse 9 says he will swallow them up in his wrath. God demonstrated his wrath on his enemies many times throughout the history of Israel. One passage in particular is Deuteronomy 9 verses 1 through 5 when he says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go into to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Listen to verse 3. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land but it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will destroy his enemies not because it is retribution for what they do to his own or to his children. It is because of their own wickedness. And in verse 10, it says, Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men, though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, and devised a plot, they will not succeed. This seems to indicate the destruction of all those who hate God through all time. None of the unredeemed of all time will escape the eternal wrath of God's judgment. And we have to understand that God judges the heart of man, not what we see on the outside. In other words, outward obedience does not guarantee an inward transformation. This was the case with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Outwardly, they were very religious. Um, uh, you know, the disciples had a tar hard time understanding this. Remember when Jesus talking about the rich man, he said... It's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than a rich man to be saved. And they say, well, then who can enter into heaven? Because in their, in the, in their mindset, to, to be rich was to, to have the blessing of God. You were rich because you were blessed by God. But Jesus says, no, you're transformed from the inside out is the ultimate blessing of God, not material possessions. Because Jesus said, what? Lay up not treasures here, but in heaven. Where 
moth and rust can't destroy. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, like I said, on the outside were very religious, but inwardly they hated God. They hated the God they claimed to serve. Another example is found in Malachi, verses 6 through 8, where it's dealing with the priest. And um, in Malachi 1, and this is, in, in the first chapter of Malachi, it's kind of a, God poses a, a question, or God pronounces something, and, and those who's pronouncing the judgment on kind of question back. In verse 6 of Malachi 1, he says, Son honors his father and servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? Come on, God, we're just doing what we're supposed to do. This is what you told us to do. He says, in that, in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? See, the requirement of the sacrifice was what? A lamb without blemish or spot. This, this, this would have been, in, in, in that time, in that agrarian society, going through your flocks, going through your herds, looking at each and every one, inspecting it carefully, and finding the very, very best you could find and bringing it to the Lord and giving it to the priest and sacrificing on the altar. But they were saying, no, we want to keep the best for ourselves. You know, this, this one's too good. Why sacrifice him? This one's not going to make it anyway. Let's just put him on there. It's a sacrifice. No, it's not. It, it didn't cost him anything. What did David say, uh, say um, when he uh, was adamant about buying the threshing floor uh, and the oxen to build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord, the man offered to give it to him. He said, I won't sacrifice anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. And God says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? He's saying, look, you're offering me these sickly animals and everything. Give it to your governor. See if he'll take it. He wouldn't even take it. And you're offering it to me, whom you call Father, He says, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. And how does God deal with somebody like that? How will he deal with those people? Same book, Malachi 4.1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, and the Lord of hosts says, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So no enemy will escape the wrath of an omniscient God. He knows their hearts, thoughts, and plans. And as it says in verse 11 about their evil plots, they will not succeed. Which brings us down to verse 12. It says, for you will make them turn their back. The first part of the verse says, this indicates cowardice. 
All those who stand in opposition to God are ultimately reduced to cowards in response to the outpouring of God's wrath and his attempt to escape. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17, paints a vivid picture. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. man. There's the whole gamut of human society right there. You have kings and you have slaves and you have everybody in between. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The answer is no one. And the latter part of verse 12 where it says, you will aim with your bowstring at their faces. This shows that the enemies of God are squarely in his sights. There's no escape. If you aim a bow, you aim at their faces, headshot. You know, accuracy. God will execute his wrath on all of those to whom it is intended. He won't miss anybody. No one escapes. So, what are we to take away from Psalm 21? As we reflect back, we see praise for God's deliverance of his people through his anointed king, and we also see how God's wrath is poured out on his enemies. Everyone who has ever lived, living, or will live falls into one of these two categories. Your friend or foe, you're blessed or cursed. You're a child of God. You're a child of the devil. There's no middle ground. John three thirty six says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's that cut and dry. Are you confident with your standing before the Lord today? Is your joy rooted in him and him alone? Do you love his word? Do you love his Christ? Do you love his people? Do you live your life to glorify him? Are you experiencing the blessings of God? Do you agonize over your sin? Now these questions are not to accuse or to cause doubt, but each one of them demands self-examination and contemplation. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself issued this warning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 15 through 23, about those who are false. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, 
will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now some people say, well, Bruce, this is speaking about false prophets. But false prophets preach a false gospel. If we believe, believe the false gospel, then we, we have a false Christ. That's what you have to ask your, yourself today. Where are you?